Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. Climate, people think sometimes it's a subtype of company and it's a vertical. It's not. Climate is a retooling of the whole economy. When you look at the sources of emissions, it's everything in the economy. It's manufacturing, steel and concrete, how we generate electricity, how we get around, how we grow our food. It's everything. You can't retool the entire economy without someone making a ton of money. It's a massive economic opportunity. All right, Alex, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Thanks for having me. So walk us through your journey to becoming a climate investor. Let's start with that. Sure. If I go back a step, I would say that I think I've always figured out what to do based on what's been interesting or what's been a giant problem or opportunity. Even going back to being a little kid, I just learned to program computers because I thought it was super fun. I had an Apple IIe and it was really (laughs) fun. And then I went to college and thought I was going to major in biology and maybe go to med school. And I remember freshman year flipping through the course catalog. At the time, it was a real book. (laughs) And I sort of figured out that if I just took all the classes that I wanted to take in the computer science department, just out of sure interest, I would end up with a CS degree. So probably that was a good way to figure out what to major in. So I think that's kind of a good strategy in general, if you're lucky enough to be able to really follow your passions, which I have been. And so for this, I've just been really concerned with the problem. It's hard to think of something more important to work on or really where the future is more unknown with two very different outcomes. So just that concern, and that comes from, you know, reading papers about it and more scientific analysis. It just comes from my experience as a human being. I mean, I've evacuated my house due to forest fires. I've had days when I couldn't go outside due to the smoke. It's just impossible to ignore. As I mentioned, my background is in software, so I started thinking about areas where I'm not a complete newbie, and there is a bunch of overlap between software companies and climate, but also been learning a lot more in areas where I'm much less facile. Things, you know, chemical engineering processes and green <laughs> concrete and all that sort of stuff, and I'm at the very beginning of my learning journey there. But I also have some hybrid things in my background. I, at one point, ran an electric flying car company called Kitty Hawk Flyer, which is climate-related. Those are flying computers, and they're all electric. So that was kind of an area that I got into it initially through a combination of love of aviation, love of the electrification of future transport, that sort of thing. Climate, people think sometimes it's a subtype of company and it's a vertical. It's not. Climate is a retooling of the whole economy. When you look at the sources of emissions, it's everything in the economy. It's manufacturing, steel and concrete, how we generate electricity, how we get around, how we grow our food. It's everything. You can't retool the entire economy without someone making a ton of money. It's a massive economic opportunity. So it makes sense as someone that is a steward of other people's capital, it makes sense to look into it. And then the last thing is, it also makes a lot of sense to invest where the smart people are going. And one of the most optimistic things in this space is really the amount of talent running into this space for the reasons that I mentioned and everyone's own personal reasons. But great companies are built by great people. And so it's a no-brainer to invest where the talent is going. I like the way you started by talking about climate as this all-encompassing problem, but then also channeled that to talk about how it's kind of an all-encompassing opportunity. You're so right that like fossil fuels or even something like fertilizer are kind of woven into the fabric of society. So to change all of that comprehensively is going to be super hard. But yeah, there's no shortage of good places to try and build new solutions. What in specific drew you then to Moxie Ventures? 
Moxie was founded by my business partner, Katie Stanton, a few, several years ago, I think 2018. Her and I have known each other for 20 years. We met at Google. We didn't work closely together at Google, but we knew each other then. It was a very small company at the time, so you'd recognize people in the halls. We worked extremely, just sort of randomly, joined Twitter about the same time and actually kind of quit within a couple of weeks of each other as well. But we both worked there for six years, extremely closely together. We were both on the senior leadership team there. And so I've known her forever. I mean, almost my entire professional career going back, you know, 20-ish years. And during that time at Twitter, well, one, it was a very stressful, you know, try to run Twitter. I think Twitter has always been stressful to run, especially these days, but it was back then as well. And so when you're stuck in a room with a small group of people working on really hard existential problems, trying to save the company from death, basically... You build a strong bond with someone in the same way that you go through any intense experience with people. You build strong bonds and you get to really trust people. And her and I both have pretty different vertical areas of expertise. She's much more branded marketing. I happen to be engineering. And so we complement each other really well. And at that time, about 10 years ago, we started angel investing together and just kind of sharing deals very informally. Hey, I'm looking at something. What do you think? Or Katie would say, hey, Alex, I'm looking at something. What do you think? We just share deals. We co-invested a lot. So in some sense, it was a very natural transition. It's not like I decided one day, oh, I want to be a VC. I'm going to drive up and down Sand Hill Road and you know, <laughs> hand out resumes. I've known someone for 20 years. I've worked with them very closely for 10 years. We've invested together over a dozen times. We've looked at hundreds of companies together. And to be honest, I think that's really important for building a venture firm. I mean, it's tiny. There are two partners. There are four of us total. And from talking to LPs, the people from whom we raise money, a lot of venture partnerships, much like companies, blow up because of founder disputes. So I feel very fortunate that we're doing this together, having had so long working together and having built this track record of trust that we don't have the general partnership risk that a lot of newer firms have. And what was the actual, the exact timeline on when you all started to, or decided to start Moxie? So Katie founded Moxie. Fund One was a single general partner, her. I was just helping her on the side. At the time, I was still running Kitty Hawk Flyer. So I would just help in nights and weekends. And as I mentioned, I was angel investing. We were both angel investors for maybe the last decade or so. And then when she went to go do that full time, I was a venture partner, which basically just means helping her out, looking at deals, still co-angel investing. But now with Katie's an institutional investor through her first fund. We decided to team up full time together and raise a second fund about two years ago because the first fund was, was coming to an end. And then we closed that fund a little over a year ago, and we've been deploying that since end of last year. And now, of course, we have an opportunity fund as well to capitalize some of our prior angel investments that we've made that are growing up. So it's kind of been a long journey, but now it's a full-time thing, and it's awesome. It's a lot of fun, and it's meaningful work, and we're in great companies. And specific to climate companies, I'm really curious to hear a little bit of your perspective about you know how much has changed or like the things that jump out at you the most from you know, maybe some of that earlier angel investing you were doing versus some of the deals that you're seeing every day now? So I think mostly good things have changed. Actually, exclusively good things have changed. There's far more awareness of the problem. There's far more exodus of people from other more varied verticals, specifically into climate. I'd say every week I probably talk to someone who wants to transition from what they're doing in some startup. Maybe they were product, maybe they're engineering, maybe they're marketing, maybe they were brand, who knows? but really wants to get into climate. There are great supportive communities that enable this. Terra.do, My Climate Journey. There are huge groups of people made up entirely of people like that and people like me who have transitioned into climate. I think that's new. I mean, that certainly didn't exist five years ago. So as a result, there's more activity. There's more funding. There are people tackling all aspects of the problem. And diving right into the present moment, what are some of the 
companies that you're most excited about right now, whether they be in your portfolio or outside of it? There are a lot. So one we did out of the second fund that we announced publicly is Bazigo, which is an electric bus subscription company. They are basically providing a battery rental subscription service, essentially, and some financing so that the upfront cost of buses is comparable to diesel. So East Africa basically is a bit hand-wavy, but gets around via bus. And they're not public transportation bus. They're actually operated by a variety of these companies, these independent groups called SACOs in, in Kenya. And there are a lot of them. And it's how the world gets around. And they're all diesel. And diesels are very cheap to acquire. And then they're relatively expensive to run. Diesel fuel is expensive. It's more expensive now. It's subject to a bunch of geopolitical events that can drive the price up or down, usually up. They break all the time. They need maintenance. Granted, there's a whole ecosystem around maintaining them, but they're very, it's a pain. Versus electric, it's clean. The maintenance is extremely low. It's just more upfront cost. So this is a company that basically helps finance them up front and then provides a subscription service so bus operators get free power every night and then maintenance and these things can operate. Really excited about that. How did you get connected with them in the first place? I'm curious kind of how that differs when you're getting introduced to an East African company versus, you know, a company in the East Coast. <laughs> so the founder, uh, Jit Bhattacharya, actually, him and I went to undergrad together, though we didn't know each other in undergrad, though we do have a mutual friend. And we had met once maybe 10 years ago, I think, at some other kind of fundraiser, never stayed in touch, just met once, got reintroduced to that friend again. And we started talking about the company. This is an interesting one, because as someone with a software background who invests, you know, in Silicon Valley for the most part, 80%, 90% in the United States, hearing about this, your prior is almost certainly you're not going to do this. When I started talking more, I just got more and more excited. I mean, the founding team, JIT, and his co-founder, Jonathan, are amazing. The market is actually really, really massive. The economics make a ton of sense. There are a ton of tailwinds, not just from general climate, finance, and desire, but also things like Kenya has a surplus of green power. And at night, there's no demand for the power because the wind is blowing and no one's using electricity, so they can charge extremely cheaply. This is when we probably spent five or 10 times as much time on diligence as we do for another company that's more down our kind of middle strike zone of what we usually do. But it just made it what seemed like a very non-obvious bet ended up making a ton of sense. So really, I mean, more generally, we've just been around for a long time, operating for a long time. And so we have our tentacles in a bunch of different networks. This one happened to come from my undergraduate network, but we have ones from existing portfolio companies we've invested in, networks from all the various places we've worked, Color, Kitty Hawk, Twitter, Google. So it comes from a sort of a mishmash of places. That one's definitely interesting also just because that's where a lot of like the population growth the next century is supposed to be coming from. People think about China and Southeast Asia. And obviously, there's a lot of population growth in some parts of Southeast Asia, but East Africa is supposed to just you know absolutely explode, which I didn't always know. Yeah. So by 2050, the population of Africa will be about comparable to the population of Asia. And we spent a bunch of time on this market because it's not a market we understand. But actually, when you look at the number of buses and the bus fares and population growth, it actually can be a very, very big business, which was, like you, surprising for us to learn. I wouldn't have guessed that at the beginning. But that's why you do diligence and you do homework and you start down roads of things that you think are not going to bear fruit because sometimes you're wrong and then you get to do the non-obvious things. So that's one. There, are t- We can talk about a ton of companies. <laughs> that's kind of one of more recent ones. Yeah. How about anything in the aviation? space. You know, Katie and I joke that the verticals that we each happen to know the most about <laughs> or a relatively large one are ones where we're least likely to do a deal. So I think, yeah, one example for that for me is aviation. I love aviation. I'm a pilot. I think flying is amazing. I'm super excited for 
the electrification of short haul aviation, and then the greenification, if that's a word, whether it's either through hydrogen or sustainable jet fuel of medium and long haul. I'm very excited for all of that. As a seed stage investor, we haven't done anything in that space yet. These are very long duration businesses and they're very capital intensive. And there's a ton of risk of a particular type that we are not super fast. The regulatory risk for certifying a new aircraft type is immense, by the way. And certifying whether electric planes in general, that's slightly easier, or the electric vertical takeoff and stuff flying cars, is very, very challenging. And so that coupled with the market not existing yet, and some questions about battery capacity and other things, those have mostly been solved. It's actually not, despite my background, it's not an area where we've invested yet. Not that I'm opposed to it, but <laughs> but we're not active areas in electric aviation. Yeah, as you gestured towards, there's, you know, compared to a software business, which isn't to say that any of these businesses are bad, some of them might be great, but there are a lot more unique factors to evaluate, whether it's the hardware itself, policy, as you said. That kind of leads me to another thing that I always like to speak with investors like yourself about, which is there is kind of this notion that VC always gravitates towards software and that's part of your background. But I always like to talk about, you know, hardware deals that you've done or have looked at and how you kind of what the process for doing a hardware deal is and how it differs from the normal workflow. I will say it's not fundamentally different at a high level, but then in practice, it's a little different. So at a high level at Moxie, we look basically at four things, people, product, market, and timing. And market and timing are sort of similar, like a market, whether or not a market is a good market depends on the time that you're looking at. So it's really people, product, and market. Product is relatively easy to pivot. You're not going to really pivot the team or at least all the team, and you're not going to pivot the market. So really, it's about, are these truly excellent founders tackling meaningful problems in large spaces? So that's the main thing. So in that sense, it's the same. If it's a hardware company, if it's a software company, if it's a company operating in Kenya or Norway or Palo Alto, it doesn't matter. Those are the main things. That said, you really need to go deep on, do these founders really know what they're talking about? What is their founder's story? Why are they working on this? And a lot of the knowing what they're talking about does require specific vertical expertise. So for us, given our backgrounds, exploring this in software companies just happens to be a thing that we're better at because we've done it for a while. That said, we've done a bunch of hardware companies. A great example is Heirloom Carbon is the director of capture company that I'm sure you're familiar with. And we invested them out of our opportunity fund recently. That was a personal investment that I made a couple of years ago. And it seems to be going really well and was watching a lot of the scientific risk there. And they're actually retiring the scientific risk faster than what they thought, in particular, the speed at which they can bind the carbon dioxide. They're basically using a specific type of rock as a sponge. Carbon dioxide binds to it, then they heat it up and remove the carbon dioxide and bury it underground. So you think of the rock kind of as a sponge. And um, the CO2 is the water. And then you can repeat that a bunch of times. Exactly. And the frequency to go through that cycle is very important for the economics and scale at which they can remove carbon from the atmosphere, right? In the same way, if you're cleaning your kitchen and you can wring out the sponge and it sucks up water in the half a second, it's a much more efficient way to clean your whole floor than a sponge that's very slow to wring out. So we saw them, and those are technical risks that we were not super familiar with. So I started it as an angel investor where the stakes are lower. I spent a bunch of time with some of the lead investors that really do have chemical and process engineering experts and was able to speak to them. I read some of their papers and then we were able to watch their performance for several years in terms of beating milestones and spend more time with the founders be very impressed. So that's a company that is outside of what you would expect us to do, but made a lot of sense. And we had the luxury because we had angel invested in it of learning over multiple years. So we just did that. 
more generally, we're not adverse to hardware companies. However, we split them into two categories. So the type of hardware company we would not do is one that has real commoditization and manufacturing scale risk. So I'm building a widget and the widget could be built internationally somewhere with a much cheaper labor force, in which case the company will die. So that for solar manufacturers in the US from 14 years ago, right? They got destroyed by Chinese companies. That's not a company we do. A company we will do is a company that makes hardware in the process, but it's incidental to running their actual business. So for example, a data company that needs sensors all over a forest to monitor wildfires in a forest has to build some widgets to collect data. But if those widgets get commoditized overnight and all of a sudden you can buy them on Amazon for two cents a widget instead of $100 a widget, that actually makes their business better because their business is a data platform. So that's actually not a hardware company, though they happen to make hardware. And we love businesses like that. Right. Kind of like the software plus a little bit of hardware. That can make good sense. Yeah, the classic, like an IoT company is sort of a classic example of that. We'll just look at the underlying subscription or software business, whatever it may be. We're in a company called Overstory, which is AI for vegetation management, and they suck in a bunch of imagery from satellites. And they do a bunch of vegetation classification. They help utilities and insurance companies with wildfire prediction and mitigation. That's a perfect example. As satellites continue to get cheaper and sensors in the forest get cheaper, their business gets better because it's a data play. So they're doing extremely well, and we're extremely proud to be investing in them. They're also not in the US, by the way. Zooming out, You've kind of hinted at a few, but I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. What are kind of like the verticals, if you will, within climate that you're most excited about? We've talked about companies that span electrification of transport, carbon removal, kind of some of this measurement reporting and verification, data sensing and all that. You know, are there specific sectors like that that you're spending more time or just more excited about in general? Yeah, we think of that the climate problem basically in two dimensions. One is bottoms up coming from the things that we happen to know about coming from the world that we happen to come from. So software, right? We look at what are software companies working on climate things. So that's great because it aligns with our expertise. The risk is some of the fundamental biggest problems in climate are not software. I mean, they may use software, but they're not software problems. So you'll miss things. So bottoms up is one way to think about it. The other is kind of top down, take a systems approach, look at what the biggest areas are, right? And the biggest areas when you bucket emissions, the biggest areas are, you know, the built environment, namely concrete and steel, but other things we build too, energy production, agriculture, transport, and then building, heating, and cooling. And different people give you different percentages of the emissions, but those are essentially the big buckets. And so we kind of look at all of those. Some are, because of the background that we have, more likely for us to do than others. But we'll look at everything. I mean, concrete production is 10%, more or less, 8 to 10% of global carbon emissions. We don't have a background in concrete or chemical engineering or process engineering, but it's so big that you can't really ignore it. And so we haven't done a deal there, but we're really excited by progress that's being made mostly in Europe. I mean, there's a Swedish company working on green concrete. There are other companies that that's really exciting. I've seen a lot of companies bubbling up in that space, so which is great. You know, we need that. Yeah, concrete and steel, basically. There are people are working on green carbon neutral versions of those. They're still too expensive. So one of our criteria is it's fine to have a green premium for now, but you have to believe this business can get to a spot quickly enough with zero green premium. When I say green premium, I mean the extra that you would pay just because you care about the environment. We are building businesses 
where you can completely ignore that and it still makes sense. That's an area where we look, we haven't done anything. Regenerative agriculture is a huge market. Again, we've done some things on the side around there. Mutrol is one company. Uh, that we angel invested in before Moxie. You probably know them. They're using supplements to reduce cow methane emissions. Higher Stakes is another company. They're doing bioengineered meat that doesn't actually come from animals. So that's really interesting. There's tons. The absorptive capacity of soil to hold carbon. The science isn't totally settled on this, but there's a lot of soil. There's a lot of land used for agriculture. And if we can sequester more carbon than that, despite the permanence and other questions that we have, they'll get figured out. And there's some promising but not totally settled science on that. That is a massive opportunity. So we look around there. That's an area where kind of if you marry that with our background, you end up on things like, hey, well, carbon concentration monitoring via satellites and then machine learning on the imagery, that's a very important part of the problem and an area where we're able to evaluate it more easily than some agricultural technique. You know, we're not farmers. (laughs) Like, what is the actual benefit? How do we know some new crop rotation, no tilling farm scheme and the effect on yield of things you're growing? Like, I don't know. We're happy to learn about that, but that's not an area where we're as smart today. Yeah, that is super important. Like a much more sophisticated measurement and verification technologies for something like soil carbon. Like that's what's really going to unlock the ability for this stuff to scale in carbon markets and for farmers to get excited about it as a result because they don't want to be they don't want to be associated with it as long as it has a bunch of question marks or they'll it'll be harder for them to get on board with it the more question marks there are. So if you can start checking some of those boxes off then Hopefully they'll start start supplying credits. Right. And at the end, you know, there are a lot of er- in measurement reporting and verification, there are a lot of areas that are software businesses. You know, Silvera.io is one, which is kind of it's like what Moody's does for bonds, they want to do for carbon credits. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace enabling a bunch of regenerative agriculture practices. Those are also areas where we've personally invested and they do something through Moxie. We'll have Paul from Nori on the on the podcast next week. Oh, awesome. That's great. You can introduce him. <laughs> Grats. Perfect. Paul is amazing. I love what they're doing. Yeah. Thanks for that rundown. I'm curious also, because you talk to so many founders and look at so many companies beyond you know familiar stuff like right now, there's obviously supply chain challenges. What are some of the kind of common challenges that all of these people across different verticals are bumping up against as they try to build and scale their businesses? This is an area too where if you abstract the level, everything looks the same, kind of like hardware or software. I mean, the challenges of running companies, and I've been lucky, I've seen this at four-person companies, two-person companies. I've seen this at 4,000-person companies, I guess Google, 30,000-person companies earlier in my career. (laughs) They're pretty common. It's so much about execution and alignment and getting, you know, you got to hire excellent people. Then you have to build an environment where they can thrive. So that means they need to understand the vision, the most important thing. They need autonomy, mastery, and purpose. They need to understand how their work plugs into the biggest thing. And that's easy to say and super hard to do. Hiring the right people, retaining the right people, giving them a sphere of ownership where their authority and accountability are basically perfectly overlapping circles so they can execute Figuring out when you have the wrong people and they can't be coached and you need to do painful things like get rid of a senior executive or something like that. So much of it is just execution across across climate, across non-climate. And we help a lot with that. I mean, Katie and I have both had relatively long careers as operators and run relatively large teams and also very small teams. So we're able to kind of help with just, it's really just the nuts and bolts of doing stuff. And I, oftentimes I think there's a lot of noise on, is your idea good? what your competitors are doing and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, everyone can have an idea. You just need to execute on the idea and build an excellent machine. 
And you kind of alluded to these days, the market is crazy. And no one knows exactly what's going to happen next or how long it's going to last or if it's going to get much worse or not. It's like evolution, right? When you get challenged through extremely difficult conditions, you either go extinct or you emerge this really resilient organism. And so much in the same way that great companies came out of 2008, great companies came out of the dot-com crisis 20 years ago, there are great companies being built right now. And this pressure that we're seeing from the world and being harder to fundraise, while stressful at the time, is an environment where great companies are going to come out. And we see that the way, you know, so there's a lot of coaching now on making sure companies have a long enough runway and not assuming they can raise around in nine months because who knows if that's true. Focusing on the most important things, only the high ROI investments. As many companies are slowing down, the ones in strong positions are able to have an easier time hiring. So that's a small silver lining. So it's a lot of this just executional cadence, focusing on OKRs and measuring the most important things. That really matters, especially for early stage where we invest where there's not always product market fit. And you have to build a very tight loop where you have a hypothesis, you ship something, you test it in the real world, you measure it, and then you tweak the product. And the more times you can turn that crank before you run out of funding or have to raise money again, the more likely you are to find product market fit and then be able to scale and build an iconic company. That's refreshing the way that you tied it back to work environment and really getting that dialed in and how your team works together and executing. It's like work environment to save the Earth's environment. You got to start there. Go ahead. You were about to say something more about that. I was going to say there's so much good intention. Like I want to hire great people and have them be in the best job of their career where they can do the best work of their career. But it's hard. As you scale a company, especially with hyper growth, it's hard to get the ownership right and not let politics creep in and be so clear on communication that everyone is running in the same direction, even if the leader is not around. It's hard to do that. And so you see a bunch of startups that despite the best of intentions have built companies where it's pretty hard to be excellent every day. And if companies can be good at that, they will attract and retain the best people who will then, by definition, do excellent work every day. And that is the single most highly correlated thing with success and finding product market fit and scaling. And you gestured at this kind of in the second half of your answer a minute ago, but how is the climate sector specifically navigating kind of this change in market environment that we've seen over the past three to six months? You know, more resilient than other sectors is kind of what I imagine, but I'll let you speak to it. So it's certainly more resilient from the point of view on there's still capital available. So companies that we invested in who are raising now in the climate sector seem to be having anecdotally an easier time. And I think the reason is the private VC-like capital that we are realizes the time value of this and the urgency. But there's also a bunch of other capital. There are companies or governments that have made net zero commitments that need to deploy, they cannot deploy capital fast enough to achieve the commitments they've publicly made. There's venture debt, there are grants, there are research opportunities. There are more types of capital available to climate companies. So in that sense, it's a better position to be in. That said, the fundamentals are the same. You need to be conscious of your spend and runway so that you can turn the crank enough times and find product market fit and scale, as we were talking about before, before the lights go out. I think that's probably the, the main thing. The other main thing, too, also that we talked about is the struggle is a lot of these companies are early and they're operating in markets that are unknown. We don't know what the market is for extremely high quality carbon offsets at scale and will the price come down fast enough for people to buy them? That's just a new market that we're building. It's like any vertical, there's some unique risk, that's one. 
in many cases, there's a hypothesis that the green premium will come down for these products. But until it has come down, it's still a hypothesis. So that's a risk. But we remain super optimistic about the amount of funding in this space and the potential. I mean, I was reading something yesterday. I forgot what I'm on a ton of, you know, climate tech newsletters and things, as I'm sure you are. I think last week alone, there were eight new rounds of $100 million or bigger including one over a billion dollars, I think Northvolt, the the battery maker. Lots of big private equity deals. Exactly. It's because of first and foremost, it's a massive market and someone's going to make a ton of money doing this. Secondly, there's so much green commitments and net zero commitments, they have to deploy the capital. And thirdly, I think an increasing motivator, and I wish it were a bigger motivator, and I think it would help us bridge some of the division we have in this country is, it's not just a climate issue. It's a national security and future viability of the United States issue. Like we've already completely lost the farm on solar manufacturing and turbine, wind turbine manufacturing. That didn't have to be the case, but that is the case. And but okay, so what are we going to do from here? There are so many frontiers on which we could become leaders. Even things that you think of that the U.S. are not like lithium production, for example. It turns out there are actually enough deposits in the U.S. I think Nevada, the Southwest U.S. basically that actually with some cool new processes, one of which I was learning about from a company that I spoke to yesterday, Travertine, the US could be a leading manufacturer of lithium. And if we get energy storage right, we could be a huge leading manufacturer that will create a ton of jobs. Or we can cede that ground internationally as we did with solar power. So I think there are tons of people that realize like this is the future of our country and our economy and our global competitiveness. And it's a massive opportunity if we do it. So even back to the conversation we were having 10 minutes ago about, you know, soil carbon, like the entire middle of the country and all those farms out there, that'd be such a great place to just completely revolutionize the way that industry works and sequester massive amounts of carbon. Yeah, I think the U.S. is about 50%, slightly over 50% land used for agriculture between livestock and farming. I don't know if that number is globally. I would imagine it's comparable. It may even be higher. But yeah, it's just a massive opportunity. It's become the world's biggest carbon sink. We like being the world's biggest in different things. Soil carbon sink, at least. Yes. (laughs) Outside of venture, what else has your attention on the climate front? We've kind of skirted around policy a little bit in our conversation. I'm curious what has your attention. So policy is not something I can control. So I'm certainly not an expert or a policy wonk. I'm encouraged by the number of commitments. Certainly the EU is making a bunch of good commitments. The US federal government doesn't seem like it's going to, even in the current administration, unfortunately. That's too bad. The states are doing a bunch of things, at least some of the states. That's really good. There are a bunch of private sector commitments that are great. I wish we could get a price on carbon, a federal price on carbon. that be amazing. I'm not optimistic of that happening in this country. There are enough green shoots sprouting up of people doing things despite that, that I don't think that is fatal. It certainly would be better. Kind of in that same realm, you know, we saw the Supreme Court EPA ruling. That was obviously not great news. A bunch of legal experts I've talked to or read about don't think it's a complete disaster. It was really kind of a narrow thing around, are you allowed to expand the Clean Air Act to doing this other thing without explicit congressional authorization and you're not? That's not the end of the EPA's ability. It certainly would make it better. But like I said, a bunch of legal experts don't think it's as bad as some of the headlines make it out to be. So that's really good. I mean, again, to an area that I would love to see federal action, I think this desire for American exceptionalism and continued economic growth is a bipartisan issue. And if you view climate as I do as that, unless a left-right, do we believe in global warming sort of thing, it would be, you know, maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but it feels like there would be potential to actually do things that are going to build these amazing economic engines and job creation engines for the future, while at the same time tackling this worldwide environmental problem and environmental disaster. 
so yeah, but I'm not a policy expert, but those are sort of some of the things I think about and pay attention to. Yeah, I like framing it as a bipartisan issue. It's like even in an extreme case where you can't convince someone to worry about global warming, like assuming that there are some people like that, you should still be able to convince them to get excited about creating a bunch of jobs, reducing costs for things and creating a ton of electricity and making it really cheap. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is parts of Appalachia have been just gutted over the last number of years with the decline of the coal industry. As tragic as that is for people's lives, that's not changing. There's no one you can elect to make coal economically viable at this point. You just can't. We can lament that, but the path forward is like, get people great jobs. But that's just such more of like this like dinner table issue, right? Let's get people great jobs where the market is and where the money is. And that's exactly aligned with this clean energy transition we need. It has nothing to do with if you, you don't even have to think you don't have to have any view on CO2 or the scientific. It doesn't matter. It's like, here's a great job. We can get this much safer than being a cold miner. But more to the point, it's a growing industry. And the other thing is not. So it would be great if the parties in this country could come together and think more about economic opportunity and providing citizens with opportunities to build lives I and mean, build an economically enriching, attractive life. I think that'd be great. Let's get great jobs. That's the campaign slogan. You have my vote. Great. <laughs> Got Let's Let's do it. Great conversation. What else would you want, thinking about folks listening to this podcast who may work in climate already, but they may well not, they might be interested in going down the investment route at some point. What would you want those folks to take away from, you know, everything that you've learned in the past decades? I mean, I'm thinking climate in general, I would say, go where the biggest problems are. That can be at a micro level, like you're working at a big company and you have the opportunity to transfer teams what you want to work on. Go work on the most important thing for the organization you're in. If you're thinking about what to do with your life, go work on the most important thing for the environment you find yourself in. So I think for those of us that are humans living on the earth, the most important thing is, which for now is all the humans, the most important thing is climate. And I say that not because it's the most interesting, which it is, I think, depending on how you're wired, but also it's where all the opportunity is, where the most personal benefit for you is, where the ability to learn is, where the ability to be the most in demand is. And I'm really encouraged by how many people are running to climate. For those that are curious about it but aren't sure if I can transition into climate investing, anyone can. And there are so many people that want to see you succeed and will be supportive. I don't like cutthroat investing environments where I'm fighting some other firm to get allocation. That's like not fun to me. It feels zero sum and not fun. I love collaborating with other investors, which we do across verticals. But I would say climate in general is probably one of the most collaborative cultures, whether you're an investor or an operator or trying to transfer in. And I think that's because of recognition that we're literally all in this together. We're all on the same planet and it's either going to be okay or it's going to be really, really bad. And so I found people to be extremely generous with their time, helping me ramp up, answering my naive questions. I try to do the same in my own way. And so if anyone out there is interested about any aspect of this, I would say, go try to learn, dive in. People will be here to help you. And the planet needs you. We need more smart people working on this. It's the most important thing. And, you know, within climate, there's all kinds of different stuff that you can get involved in. It's not like you're going to find something that you can get excited about. And it might be building tidal turbines that float in the ocean or producing different materials that can replace plastics or going out in the forest and measuring data or, I don't know, fighting fires. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And it's not even so obviously, I think any technical discipline has a role in the climate solution. But even other disciplines, I know one person who is an artist that has gotten into climate documenting a bunch of technologies and other things to raise awareness, people with expertise in brand marketing, communications, policy, it really needs all of the set of skills. So no matter how you're wired, what your background happens to be in what you are interested in learning, there's opportunity if you're passionate about the space. Right on. Well, thanks so much for joining, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.